Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the mic, starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik. Today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Chris Miles. Hi, Chris. Hey, Mike. Good to, good to see you again, man. Good to see you again, too. <laughs> we just saw each other a couple of days ago. So, um, how you doing? How was your, uh, I guess, uh, flight back home? Uneventful, which is exactly how you want airline flights to be, right? That's <laughs> just right. nice That's and exa- easy, no problems, you know? That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, so, y- you hail from... Uh, uh, neighborhood of the Salt Lake City, and we, you've come mm-hmm. on the podcast before, so I appreciate you coming on the podcast once again. Uh, we are in multiple masterminds together, the Collective Genius, the Freedom Founders, uh, and you are the expert in uh, infinite banking, whole life insurance, and all that stuff, so I greatly appreciate your wisdom coming on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Just to refresh the audience, you live again, you have, you're married, only eight kids, only eight, that's it, right? <laughs> yeah. To, to be fair, two of them are not my birth children, they're bonus kids, right, from my wife's previous marriage, but still eight kids together is, is like the Brady Bunch, but there's no room for Alice, so we have no housekeeper. I am the housekeeper. <laughs> that is amazing. I give you all the strength. So I got four kids and it's, it's hard as it is. You got eight, I, I can't even imagine having double the, uh, you're the zookeeper. <laughs> in a matter of I speaking <laughs> yeah that's what makes it easy i can I, if i can handle eight kids i can handle anyone right <laughs> that's that's the truth you, you you're used to a uh a busy environment let me put it this way for sure let's so let's let's talk you've come uh on the podcast before and uh, i just want to kind of refresh folks of what you do and now it is so much more relevant the uh, stock market is doing its incredibly volatile you're your thing, fearful mm-hmm. of the coronavirus, and we are, I don't know when this episode is going to air, but uh, I project it's going to be continuous volatility. So what you offer right. is something very different. You offer whole life insurance that is used um, as um, infant banking product. It could be a retirement product. Mm-hmm. It could be just a savings uh, mechanism. So talk a little bit about that. What, what are the, the sort of the basics of uh, what is what is it all about? Let's go back to the real simple fundamental things. Yeah, I mean, really, it's it, when we talk about infinite banking, we're talking about using life insurance, specifically whole life insurance. You know, and uh, and I've and I've been across the gamut, right? For those of you that maybe didn't hear my previous interview, I, I started 18 years ago as the traditional mainstream financial advisor, teaching everything that you've always heard. You know, save all your money in mutual funds. You know, ride out the waves because hey, the market's averaged 12 percent since since 2000 BC, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, and, uh, and I came to know after about four years, as I started to look at real numbers, that those numbers weren't really working, you know? And, uh, like for example, the S and P 500, I mean, de- depending on the day that you look at it right now, the last 30 years has averaged 7.5% of an actual yield per year. You know, when you actually put the numbers in, the average is higher because of the negatives and, a- and positives. And that's a whole nother story. But the actual yield is about seven and a half percent. How is that possible? Uh, with the uh, average and actual not being the same? Yes. Yeah. Well, I first learned this, funny enough, as a financial advisor, and it took me three years before somebody brought it up. It was actually one of the product providers, right? 
he was uh, he was pitching us on indexed funds, right? And specifically about indexed annuities where they didn't have any downside risk. And he's told us, he said, okay, guys, this was in 2004, 2005 when he was talking to us. He said, all right, if you have $100,000 in your, in your fund and it drops 50%, what do you have? And of course, in unison, we all save 50,000 bucks. It's like, great. Now, guys, if you want to get back up to $100,000, what ROI do you need? What rate of return do you need to get? And we all said in unison, 50%, right? Because, hey, you drop 50, you got to need 50 to go back. No, and he not. said, wrong. He's like, because if you have $50,000, you make 50% on that. That's only $25,000. You're only at $75,000. You're still short. You actually need 100% to get back to $100,000. And, and then he said, here, look at this. Negative 50 for year one. Year two, you get positive 100. You would think you'd have, you know, you'd think you'd be better off because that average return, you know, negative 50 plus 100 is 50 divided by two years is a 25% average rate of return. He's like, well, this is what every of, of our financial institutions are using for rates of returns is averages, right? So he's like, therefore you have a 25% average rate of return, but you just broke even. And actually, if you factor in fees, you probably only have like 98,000 or less. <laughs> so you probably still are down, right? And, and it blew our minds. And we actually started looking at numbers. We said, hey, from 95 to 2005, you know, what would have been better? Being in the market with all these huge swings or actually being in like fixed accounts? you know, or even indexed accounts, right? Um, and I mean index, not like the spider fund. I mean like index meaning like the ones that don't have any downside risk. And we found out even despite the roaring 90s, we all would have had more money <laughs> had we invest our money in more certain funds than we did in these volatile funds that had all the highs and the lows. And, and that's kind of what shifted my mind a little bit, you know, plus realizing that the actual return of the market, even though they might say the average for large cap stocks have been around 10% forever, the truth is it's about seven and a half. If you put into a calculator, put the SP 500 from 30 years ago till the, the what it's showing today, you'll find out it's about a seven and a half percent return depending on the day. It's somewhere between 7.4 and 7.6 depending so, on the day. So if I understand this correctly, what you're saying, it is the IRR, the internal rate of return, mm -hmm. is really only seven, seven and a half because it, it does yeah. take into the account, obviously, ups and downs. That's, that's the whole beauty about IRR. It actually computes things um, it also it takes into the account the distributions and, and yeah. uh, the distributions generally in stock market are pretty low. I mean, the, the, the dividends That's right. are low. So the, the, there was but another... Mm. So I was say, you're, I mean, you're a fund manager. So I mean, the cool thing is like you look at funds, right? Like most people, how they invest in the traditional way. I mean, even if they have the S&P 500 fund, they're still going to have at least a half percent to a full percent, depending if it's in their 401k or not, coming out in fees administrative fees and so forth on top of it, they're lucky to get a six and a half to 7% average return. And most people don't even get that good because they have other funds that usually don't keep up with S&P 500, you know? Right. I mean, the good old um, uh, well-known fact is that 80% uh, of the funds can't beat the index. So the active managers don't, don't necessarily, uh, I don't know what they get paid for in essence in yeah. the stock market. The, the other thing I thought you would mention very quickly is um, when people enter the market. People seem to enter the market at the wrong time. <laughs> What's most interesting is when things are uh, going down, people start panicking, they sell, mm -hmm. and then things bottom out, but they don't go in until the market hits a pretty good high point, then they go back in, and they yep. miss all that recovery. Uh, so being impatient has its own problems. Uh, and trying to time the market is pretty hard. Most people get hurt timing the market. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Most, most people never, never keep up. And that's why it's so common to hear people say, wait a minute, I just noticed the growth of my fund has only been going up because I'm adding money to it, not necessarily because the market's going up. And, uh, and that's when people start to realize, wait, I'm not getting these returns that I should be getting, you know? And, that's right. And, and we, we all know the pitfalls of the stock market, especially um, uh, when it, the volatile days come in. Uh, if, you, if you enter the market at the, at the wrong time, you, mm -hmm. for one, it's, it's stressful because it goes up and down. And being um, very liquid and being very um, easy to invest in, it also makes people extremely uh, uncomfortable and nervous and unhappy mm -hmm. when this thing starts falling down a lot quickly. So it's a psychological thing. And then on top of all that, the, the real returns are not exactly what the Wall Street kind of promotes. So let's, um, for the moment, again, go back to uh, investing. Again, let me, let me take a st step back and talk, talk a little bit about the investment quadrants and where the whole life policy investing, internet banking falls in these quadrants. So... Uh, my, my audience have heard quite quite a lot uh, about the investment quadrants. The quadrants one and two are uh, investment grade, fairly um, defensive quadrants with good downside protection. Mm -hmm. uh, and quadrant three and four being speculative, and quadrant one and three being cash flow quadrants. The quadrants uh, uh, two and four being the growth quadrants. So, when when folks invest in a um, whole life policy, just I'm, I'm thinking. Just basics of it. It's safe. Yeah. Uh, it's guaranteed by the life insurance company. And most of these companies have been around for a long time. These life insurance contracts, pretty strong financially. And um, uh, these life insurance companies have been around forever. And they're probably going to you know, going to be around for hundreds of years into the future. Mm -hmm. so, the so it feels like they got pretty good downside protection. But they generate what kind of yield? Four, four and a half percent? Does that sound right? Uh, at least, yeah. Uh, over time, uh, the hard thing is, you know, for most people, they say, well, I get to get past those costs of insurance, right? But the way I design them, there's usually low costs uh, up front. And it usually, it usually actually exceeds about 5% a year, tax-free net of the insurance costs. So if you were to compare apples to apples with a savings account, it's, it's essentially like a tax-free supercharged savings account. But uh, instead of earning point nothing percent, you're actually earning about at least four and a half to five percent average per year, tax-free. That's a great point. So that's the way to think about this. Is this is for people to keep cash, uh, especially now. Uh, one of the fears today is when mm -hmm. the opportunities come in to buy. I'm gonna I'm gonna have no cash. Yeah. So, uh, they don't, but they don't want to push the cash to work to today because they don't know when when the bottom hits. So right. this becomes an alternative to a savings account that that actually pays as you five plus percent effective. Yeah. Um, so how does it work? If somebody wanted to, let's just go through a use case scenario. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you design a policy for them, especially if they want access to, to cash? I, I, I know you structure it differently than if they want retirement savings. They don't need liquidity years down the road. Mm -hmm. But if they, they will want liquidity in a couple of years. Uh, so how would you structure a good uh, policy? Just, let's just use an example. Yeah, so the key to design a good policy is just minimizing the costs right off the get-go, right? Um, I typically try to do it to where I can put in the max amount of cash for the least death benefit possible, right? Um, nothing is having good death benefit because I think you do, do need that kind of protection. But uh, most often though, um, I usually reverse engineer for people. So if they say, Chris, I want to put in 25,000 a year, right? Um, I'll say, great. 
let's figure out what the minimum death benefits needed to dump in 25,000 a year and keep it tax-free. Because it's, and in a lot of ways, it's like a Roth, but unlike, unlike a Roth where you're limited to six or $7,000 a year, with this, you can dump in almost as much as you want, uh, usually at least 25% of your gross income, right? So um, a lot of times that's what I'll design is like, okay, let's figure out what we want to do, how much we want to keep liquid. Even in the first few years, I'll even do it to where uh, if people have their six months emergency savings, um, I'll do the same thing I do with my own situation, which is, hey, maybe we move two thirds of that savings into the life insurance, right? That, that, that's an interesting view. So emergency savings, the emergency cash can be in life insurance. And yeah. what, what are the chances when you need the money, life insurance company will give it to you? Uh, very easy. And you get 95% of whatever cash is in there you have access to. And it takes about a week to week and a half to get it either uh, electronic transfer to your account or a check mailed to you. So it's, so it's, it's a not liquid like overnight, but it's, uh, it does take about a week and a week and a half to get the money. So it's still pretty liquid. So it's a loan against the cash value of your, of your policy. You could do either. You could either do a loan or a withdrawal, you know. But, if, but, but withdrawal is, is, can, can trigger tax consequences, right? Potentially. It's, it's, you have to go way above your cost basis to do that. Um, and that's, most people usually don't withdraw that much. But yeah, you could. So you have to be careful of that. Um, if you want to completely not even worry about taxes ever, then yeah, you just do it as a, as a loan. It's, it's like a secured line of credit, almost like a HELOC it's like a HELOC that pays you interest, right? Um, so say, for example, you have $100,000 sitting in there and you say, I need 50,000 of that out of here. You could withdraw it. You'd probably be fine. Um, or you can just do a loan for 50,000 bucks. What, what now, kind if of interest normally, rate on the loan? Yeah, kind of yeah. There's going to be an interest rate. Let's say it's 5%. That's kind of right about average for a lot of the companies, you know? Um, so say you take out at 5% for that 50,000 bucks. Well, some people would say, well, why would I want to pay that money for my own money? Well, the reason is this, is that when you do it this way, see, if you just withdrew 50,000 out of your savings account, you're left with 50,000 to earn that point nothing percent interest, and then you get taxed on that point nothing percent interest, right, in the bank. That's right. But here, you're like you're saying, like when you're making like four, five percent or more, you know, net tax-free dividends on that money, now what happens if you borrow from it, that full 100,000, even that 50,000 you've been borrowing is getting, is earning that tax-free dividend on that money. So now, you know, yeah, you might be paying 5%, but you might be earning almost 5% in return too. Right, sort of a wash. Your, your money yeah. is still growing tax-free at, at, at a pretty similar rate to what you're borrowing against. And you don't mm -hmm. have to go to the bank and submit a ton of documents, go through financial anima, uh, mm -hmm. they got to <laughs> approve you. So yeah. you're, you're getting a loan from life insurance company that's pretty much based and secured by the cash in your life insurance policy. Right. And they'll, they'll do it, as you're saying, in a couple of weeks. Yep. It's a private loan. doesn't even show up on your credit. So don't worry about that. There's no minimum monthly payment required. Um, the, there's a possible? balloon payment for you to oh, call it that, but that's at your death. <laughs> so balloon payment that's due is at your death and they just take that off your, your death benefit. So say that 50,000, you never paid anything on it. You just let the interest grow on it for so many years. Say it gets up to $70,000. Well, if you have a million dollar policy, they just take that 70,000, pay it off and pay your family the other 930,000. That's amazing. I mean, that is a pretty strong product. You don't have to uh, pay them the interest. They, they just accrue it and grow the balance on the, uh, mm -hmm. on, the, on the loan. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I recommend, especially if you're going to use it, I mean, depending on how you use it, right? If you're just using this as like extra liquid reserves, which I am starting to have my clients do just to build up for this recession, right? Um, to say, hey, what's that next opportunity? Let's build up some dry powder here. But um, 
even then, like uh, if I have people borrowing from it to go and invest, if they want to go and invest in a property or into a fund that pays them dividends or whatever it might be, it's like, great, take those dividends, use that to put back towards that line of credit. What happens is you actually start paying down that loan. The interest being charged gets less and less while the interest you're earning is compounding more and more and you actually end up double dipping on your returns. Um, so to give you an example, uh, I had, you know, I have, you know, I use this example of somebody buying turnkey properties, right? Um, they are buying about $95,000 down payments between those two properties. Um, we, we factored it out with the thousand dollars plus a month of cash flow, net cash flow. We factored in, it's like, what's the difference between using this versus a savings account with a savings account? If you liquidate, you know, 95 of your hundred thousand, then you start building it back up of over a thousand bucks a month over time. What ends up happening is after eight years, you've got about 128,000. But if I did the same thing with my life insurance, same loan, but I, I borrow it from my cash value, right? From the insurance company for the cash value, and then use that same cash value to pay it back towards that line of credit. The interesting thing is I end up having, a, instead of 128,000, I actually end up having 178,000 after eight years. So I made $50,000 more doing the same thing I would have done with my savings account anyways, just because I used my life insurance versus just using a plain old simple savings account. And like you mentioned, there's even better protection too, because you know, savings accounts have FDIC, which we all know FDIC is pretty broke, <laughs> you know, but with insurance companies, they can't lend out more money or use more money than they have in, in, in their savings, right? They can't go and do their fractional reserve banking and they can't do any of that stuff where they're leveraging beyond what they have. And even if they do happen to go under, they still have reinsurance companies that come in and secure all of that in there. So the cool thing is it's actually safer than a savings account, but it pays you more and it's tax free. Yeah, that's certainly fascinating. Um, yeah, the compounding of the, I mean, it's basically every dollar that you, you get back from your investments, if you apply to pay down the line of credit with insurance company, it just accelerates um, the, the growth of savings, compounding in essence. Yeah. So it's a very flexible product that makes a ton of sense. So um, just a curious, what portion of an individual's portfolio, just you know, as far as your understanding is concerned, should be in this type of product? So if somebody yeah. has 10 million bucks, mm -hmm. um, what amount do they, let, let's talk a little bit about every year saving 25,000 bucks or versus one time, say life insurance should be 5% of their portfolio. So they, 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 can they jam in half a million bucks into something quickly? They could try Yeah, they could definitely try that. Um, I, I usually recommend if we're going to do it, split up over a few years to lower the cost some more and it just gives them a better ROI. But you can definitely jam in more money and, and do stuff that way too. You can do either. How, how does it work? Let's, let's go through a scenario. So one is pretty obvious. You, you have a policy with some base uh, death benefit and everything mm -hmm. else is a rider that allows them to, 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 to put more cash in. Yeah. So, you know, a typical one, like if you're talking about that 25,000 a year, right? And this, this is say this is like a 40 year old or something. Um, I mean, 25,000 a year, usually the first year, if, if you do a normal insurance policy, a normal whole life, this is the difference between normal whole life versus what, how I design them, which is even different than infinite bankers in many cases. Um, normal whole life, you put in 25,000 first year's cash value, because unlike term insurance, which is like the same payment, but it goes up over time, whole life is the opposite. There's upfront costs. And then it goes down over time. So they load the upfront cost. So if you did a normal whole life policy, you put in 25,000 that first year, you've got zero cash because it all goes to costs. Second year, if you put in another 25,000, 
you might be lucky to have one or 2,000 bucks in there. That's it. Okay. The way I design it, uh, you put in 25,000 that first year, you've got about 20,000 cash from day one. The second year, you put in another 25,000, you probably have now some of the ballpark of about 43,000, give or take, something like that. So instead of having maybe one or 2,000, you've got at least 40,000 bucks in there in year two. And usually by year five, if someone put in 25,000 a year, that's 125 grand, usually they'll have about 125 grand by that point. And from that point on, it just exponentially just grows and grows and grows. So that's the difference there. Uh, I, I completely understand. I think you're doing it through a writer and it's, it's always uh, versus the, the traditional you know, 20 pay policy. Mm-hmm. So we covered that case. What about the case? How do they um, jam in a lot of money into one year? People call over, over funding the policy. How does that work? Yeah. See, in a normal policy, same thing would happen. If 20% goes to cost that first year, you try to jam in 500,000, but 100,000 is going to go to cost, right? So you'd be left with maybe 400,000. But there's sometimes I can do things with different companies where I can do, uh, get a little bit less cost up front where maybe it's only taking out 10 to 15%, um, you know, and that kind of thing, right? So that's, that's why I usually I'll spread it out just to kind of make it less. Yeah, but help me understand, how does the policy work? How can you set it up so you don't have to contribute next year again 100,000 bucks? Well, you could, well, you have to, well, it's just like this. Um, you know, every, most companies will require you to do at least seven years of funding. But if you jam in a bunch of money in the front year, right? I mean, you can either put in some additional later or what you do is whatever the cash you have in there, use that to pay the premium for the next year. So you borrow the cash, you, know, you pull out the month for it to do, put it right back in. And the cool thing oh, is I usually see. by the third or fourth year, whatever you put back in is going right to cash value anyways. There's like a zero net cost by the third or fourth year. So, oh, I see. So instead of contributing anymore, the income from the overloaded policy begins to pay for the premiums that you need to contribute. And, right. Uh, it takes care of itself. Yeah. So it's always case by case. Like, like I said, sometimes if we could divide it up in two or three years, we can make it work better. There'll be less cost overall. Um, but you can do it either way. That's the thing is that it just depends on your situation and what works best. Got you. I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense. So what percent of your portfolio should be in the life insurance? Just again, uh, without giving any investment advice, more like usually or typically people, what, what, what do they put? Is there a good uh, rule of thumb? You know, a good rule of thumb is it, it depends on where they're at. If they got, like you said, $10 million portfolio, I'd probably say they don't need to have much more than a million or two in that, you know, and, and they, again, it can be actively investing it too. It depends on how much they want to use it. If they're just thinking to set it aside and never use it until retirement, that's, I might do less. But if they're thinking, hey, I'm going to be using this actively to, to invest in different deals, okay, maybe you could have a higher percentage of your portfolio. I'll tell you this, I never have people put 100% of their cash reserves in their insurance. Um, so I'll give you an example. There's a mutual friend of ours. He's an, an, an operator, a deal operator. He said, hey, Chris, I want to set one of these up. What do I do? And I said, well, what kind of cash do you have? He said, well, I've got... 80,000 in cash you can just use right now. Um, I was like, okay, do you need to use this anytime soon? He said, well, yeah, I need about 70,000 of it. I said, well, factoring that whole 20% first year type cost, I'm like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to put all 80,000 into this like you're thinking. Instead, let's do 35,000, you know, do that. So then you'll have roughly about 29,000 available to use. The other 45,000 is liquid and available. You still got more than that 70,000 to use. And so, I said, in your case, yes, I could, sure, I can make more money having you do more, 
but this is what's right. Do this instead where now you've got the best of both worlds. You still got that fund there that's got plenty of cash and you got money to be able to do the investment deal. So again, it's always case by case and how you're planning to use it. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's something where you put the majority of your wealth in necessarily. You know, like I, I like to have my money out there investing too. So I don't even have the majority of my money in life insurance. Uh, understood. And that's a great point. So it makes a ton of sense, diversification, and it's, it should be part of the portfolio. And the fact that you have access to cash, you can actually, like you, like you mentioned, you can invest 10 to 20% of your entire portfolio in a, a life insurance policy, but because you have access to cash, you have mm -hmm. access to 85% you know, of the money fairly quickly. And that enables you to do other things and can consider other investments. So you're not really losing the liquidity. Uh, and in fact, you, you're maintaining the liquidity and some good comes along. Uh, this becomes pretty pretty helpful um, if if an opportunity knocks on your door. So yeah, yeah. I just thought of another strategy that could work well too. Um, if you're trying to get a better ROI on the cash that's sitting around. So you mentioned, what if I had a half million? I want to invest it. Well, if we look at it and say, well, hey, the cost we can minimize if we spread out the years that you pay it. One thing you can do is you can put the half million into their. They have like a, a basic savings account fund that pays three and a half percent. You could throw in that fund, and maybe it pays a hundred thousand a year to the policy keeps putting it in. So by the end of that hundred, you know, by the end of that fifth year, you've got about 500,000, but at least you made three and a half percent of the money that was sitting there. So you're still making money on that money uh, regardless. So there's different ways you can kind of design it and structure it to make it uh, work better to your advantage. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, interesting concept. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking as a fund manager, maybe it's even applicable to, um, uh, to my case, as you could sort of the fund could take a mm. life insurance policy on me and, and get a better return on the cash that is sitting in the bank and doing absolutely nothing when earning whatever quarter of a quarter percent or something. Right, exactly. Yep. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Let's uh, switch and kind of, or maybe not a switch, but a kind of extend uh, the, the thought process. So, uh, beyond life insurance, you, you work with folks on their financial planning a little bit, help them design, I guess. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. What do you do? Um, listen to the podcast if they, uh, certainly this is, a, this is your area of focus, your expertise. Mm -hmm. If they want to do something like that, you're the person to talk to. Uh, but what, what, how, what, do you, what else do you do? How, how else do you help them out? Yeah, I work like an anti-financial advisor, right? So <laughs> I'm definitely not looking to uh, put money, people's money into mutual funds and things like that. I'm more about like what you promote on the show and what you actually do yourself, which is invest in things that are like real estate based or whatever it might be and more secure. Like you'd say quadrant one or quadrant two, whether it's cash flow or growth focused, less, not really speculative, but more, uh, you know, certainty, right. And, uh, creating that certainty around creating cash flow. So if someone says, Hey, Chris, I would love to be able to retire, uh, in the next 10 years with 10,000 a month cash flow. I was like, great, let's figure out with your assets, what's the best way to do that. Now, I won't cross the line. I won't say you should do this or you should do that. I never tell people like you should absolutely do this recommendation of this investment. But I will say, hey, let's look at the different options that are available out there, you know, connect you and strategize and figure out what's the best, you know, what are the best options and then let you decide from there, give you the risks and the rewards, the consequences and the, and the benefits and figuring out what actually helps you meet your goals and, and get to that place, which that's the sad thing is that all, a lot of the things I actually talk about having people do is stuff that you would never have a financial advisor talk about because they can't sell it to you. You know, they can't sell you, you know, a turnkey property. They're going to tell you, don't do that. Invest in my crappy fund, right? <laughs> you know, their crappy mutual fund, they're going to say invest in that. They're not going to say, 
invest over here if it's not something they can make a commission on, you know? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. Um, just to kind of explore on this a little bit further. Uh, yeah, the, the traditional REAs uh, only offer the products typically uh, approved by their REA parent company. Right. And a lot of advisors work for bigger shops, so they only offer products, number one, that are general accepted safe. Well, it's, 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 you're investing in the market, you're in a mutual fund, you're investing in, it, 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 it's, it is not viewed as speculative or, or aggressive when it is. In, in reality, mm -hmm. some of these stocks, they should not be, some you're not even funds, diversified. <laughs> you're not diversified, but uh, at least you can't complain, hey, the market tanked, if things go bad, they yeah. didn't recommend something that, it wasn't an alternative. Alternatives are viewed riskier, when many ways they're not, they're much mm -hmm. more predictable. I, yeah. You're calling it safer, I, I like to use the word predictable. Uh, yes. Safe, safety is certainly a good word, and um, the Quadrant 1 and 2 deals are safer than Quadrant 3 and 4 in general, mm -hmm. uh, but predictability is just, it's a key word to describe it. The other really interesting point that you mentioned is their motivation, right? I mean, unfortunately, too many of these, of these folks are commission-driven, uh, they're not purely working um, on uh, you know flat fee basis, so they 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 have some motivation, other motives to kind of give you some some you know, some ideas to what to invest in. But what I really like about guys like you, this was the most most fascinating. The crooks, they're going to come in and they're going to tell you, I'll tell you what to invest in, and then they push you into the things that they 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 want you to invest in. The really good guys don't do that. In fact. Mm -hmm. They push really hard back. They don't want to give you any investment advice. They just want to educate you and help you make your own decision. So, yeah. and that's the most amazing because most people are smart and they don't even realize how smart they are. If they're <laughs> given the right coaching and the right education, they can make these decisions without anybody pushing them into anything. Absolutely. And that's, that's the strength of what good guys do is they, they, they don't want to, they're actually very careful because you want to understand the person, you want to be able to help them and Different folks have different situations. Exactly. Yeah. People, people are really smarter than most people give them credit for. And I remember being trained as that mainstream advisor. They would, they would always tell us, hey, you, you make sure you let them know that they don't know anything. <laughs> you know, that you basically do the thinking for them, that you're the expert, and they'll just trust you and throw money at you. And that's wrong. That's terrible. That is wrong. That is uh, uh, it's disrespecting people. It's demeaning mm -hmm. people. It is. And uh, there are plenty of people who have been trained to think like that, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. when you start opening the horizons for them and you tell them, listen, can't give you any investment advice. Uh, first of all, I'm not licensed for it. Two, I don't play one on TV. And three, I'd like <laughs> you to learn. Most importantly, I'd like you to learn and like to be able to make better decisions with eyes wide open instead of somebody else yes. making decisions for you. So That's right. It's amazing. Um, we're sort of running out of time. Uh, it's been great. Uh, I think it's a lot of wisdom in, in infinite banking and in the way you approach it. Any other quick feedback, advice, uh, thoughts for the audience? How would they get a hold of you? How somebody wanted to, to, to do this, put some money yeah. into a good whole life policy with a good cash value, they have access to, to, to the cash uh, and, and have uh, you know, that decent death benefit. What's, what's the best way to reach you? Absolutely. Yeah, they can definitely go to my website, moneyripples.com. That's M-O-N-E-Y-R-I-P-P-L-E-S.com. Um, they can go there and message me through that. 
Um, and also, I invite you to check out my Facebook, my, my, well, I have a Facebook page, but check out my, uh, my podcast. I actually have a podcast as well called The Chris Miles Money Show, where I teach a lot of these concepts and I go in, in depth with different aspects and angles. So definitely invite you to follow me there too. And that's great. And um, uh, lines are ringing off the hook. I can already yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> people are calling right away. They're just calling right now. <laughs> they want to learn uh, money ripples. That's so, right. Yep. Anyway, thank you for coming on the podcast. Greatly appreciate your wisdom and your friendship. And um, I guess I'll see you soon at CG. Hopefully, we don't have the. Uh, I don't know if you are, you. are you going? I am. I'll be there next week. Yep. Well, me too. If we don't, the coronavirus doesn't get any worse, so <laughs> a, a, a little, little bit uh, scary. But uh, some people say it's a common flu, and some people say it's a little bit worse than a common flu. So, worst case, we look like Bane from Batman, like you know, something like that. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. We were laughing about it, but uh, unfortunately, some people are dying from it. So that's uh, true. Thoughts and prayers with those who are affected by the. Uh, terrible virus so yeah anyway thank you kindly and uh, i think we're done All right thank you for listening to the big mike fun podcast to receive your copy of mike's how to choose a smart real estate fun book head to bigmikefun.com or visit amazon and type mike slotnik keep listening and keep investing big mike style see you on the next episode